Hello, everyone, and welcome to Untangle, the meditation podcast from Gaiam. I'm your host, Patricia Carpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I sat down with Stephen Batchelor. Stephen's an author, teacher, and scholar. He's written several books and articles on Buddhist topics and leads meditation retreats throughout the world. He's also a noted proponent of secular Buddhism and refers to himself as a skeptical Buddhist. He's here to tell us what that means and give us his own take on meditation. Stephen, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Patricia. Yeah, I know you're a scholar and an author and a teacher of Buddhism. You say that you're a skeptical Buddhist, and I think that ties into how some people think about meditation. So I'd love for you to talk about what a skeptical Buddhist is. Okay. um, I'm a skeptic in some (laughs) senses, but I take the word not in the trivial sense that it's often used. In other words, I can't trust this. I don't like that. This is a load of baloney. Rather, in the original Greek sense, skeptic means a person who questions, a person who investigates. And I think that lies at the heart, uh, both of genuine skepticism. We don't take things on trust. We check them out first. And in Buddhism, I think that is actually very much at the core of the tradition. One is encouraged uh, to analyze, to inquire, to look deeply into things and not simply to mindlessly follow things because some enlightened teacher or someone has said they're true. So let's think about how does that um, translate to a skeptical meditator, for example. I know so many people think meditation doesn't work, and there are a lot of people that talk about meditation being a cure-all for everything. Mm. And so how do we look at meditation? Or how does the skeptic... How does the skeptic look at meditation? (laughs) Well, first of all... um, Let's say someone says meditation is good for you. And if you have a lot of stress, if you find that your mind is all over the place, if you feel kind of anxious all the time, then meditation might help. So a skeptic will say, okay, that may or may not be true. And the only way actually to find out is to do it. You can complain about it and have opinions about it, but unless you've actually had some first-hand experience yourself, you're really just um, repeating the, the chatter in your mind. So check it out. See if it works. That's what matters. If it doesn't, it may work for some people. It may not work for others. But the important thing is to say, okay, let's take a weekend meditation course or I'll start meditating once a day and uh, see where this goes. But how does somebody approach this? For example, there are so many different meditation styles, so many different teachers. You know, some people sit and their mind just keeps going, 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 or they fall asleep, and that's the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, this is actually a very good point. Um, Part of the problem today is there's almost an excess of people telling you what meditation is. And, you know, you have to just uh, sort of look around a bit and use your own uh, antennae to say, well, this seems to be an approach that makes sense to me. This resonates with me. Uh, These people who are teaching it here, they seem to be trustworthy. At a certain point, you have to sort of say, okay, I cannot possibly know everything about what I'm being told or what I'm reading, but at this point, I'm going to jump in 
I'm going to try it out. It may not work for you. You may then find that when you do meditate, you have certain problems. You bring those up to the teacher. You look, for example, in your meditation manual to see how to solve them. You follow your own nose, basically, and uh, try to find a form of practice that suits you. You have to take it with a certain degree of seriousness. It's a bit like swimming, you might say. At a certain point, you have to dive in. You have to splash around a bit. It may not be comfortable. Uh, you might get your mouth full of water. But at a certain point, you figure out how to do it. Maybe think of it like that. Learning how to swim. Learning how to ride a bike. It's not something you can just get immediately. Right. You need to practice. You need to maybe make a few uh, pratfalls. But in the end, um, you find yourself saying, oh, wow, this is what it's like to ride a bicycle. And then you're off. So meditation is very much like that. It's a discipline. It's a training. It may not be easy at the outset, but you kind of find intuitively um, how to do it. And would you say that you, you have to make a commitment or have some sort of discipline, maybe the same way you go exercise at the gym, at least for a, a short period of time, maybe three months or something, in order to see some initial benefits? Or what's your thought on that? Well, it depends really on on why you are starting to meditate in the first place. It might be that you have some issue, say, that you suffer from uncontrollable anxiety. You've tried therapy. That doesn't really work. Meditation is recommended to you. In that case, you would judge it in terms of how it actually affects your anxiety problems, let's say. Um, you may approach meditation because you're looking for some deeper inner peace within yourself. You're looking possibly even for a mind that can contemplate more deeply the, the, real, you know, the real questions of life. And so the effectiveness of it has to be you know, measured in terms of what you've set out to do with it. And some of these things, like finding the meaning of life, for example. <laughs> might take a little time. <laughs> it might take more than a couple of weeks. And it might be something that you would, it, it, will, it will become the entry into another way of, of how you live in the world. For others, it's, you know, there is a certain short-term goals. Can I find a way not to be so uptight, let's mm -hmm, say? Mm -hmm. And you would measure it in those terms. There are many, 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 many right. different styles of meditation. We don't yet have a language in the West whereby we have uh, an idiom and terminology uh, that we're familiar with in our culture. We're sort of groping for a language in many ways. And meditations can be those that emphasize just concentration, uh, settling on a single object. There can be meditations that are about paying attention to the complex array of what's occurring in a given moment. There are meditations that uh, utilize questions, there are meditations that involve visualization, mantras, uh, phrases that you might repeat. Um, so there's a whole range of styles. They say that ex Eskimos have 19 different words for snow. Oh. Um, Buddhists perhaps have 19 different words for meditation. That's, that's such an interesting point. I just learned something, actually. It's like there's a spectrum of benefits that you can have along the way um, right. And depending on your teachers and your experience, that will drive what kind of benefit you have. Exactly. Is that... No, that's absolutely right. In fact, it's useful to let go of the idea that meditation is, is, is one particular thing. It's, it's a range, like sports. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you do sport. Right. Okay, now you can do, you <laughs> can throw the javelin, you can go jogging, you can do jumping, you <laughs> right. can do swimming. You do meditation. Think of meditation like a kind of inner sport. Right. An inner discipline. There are many different styles. Because I think a lot of people now are gravitating towards mindfulness-based stress Mm -hmm. reduction because it feels like it's acceptable and there's a lot of science. Um, Not everyone knows that it comes from the Buddhist tradition Mm -hmm. (laughs) originally. Um, But I think it's it's out there in the mainstream much more now, and so people feel a little more confidence in having that be the entry Mm -hmm. point. Yeah, I think mindfulness is a very good entry point. Uh, It's very simple, and that doesn't mean it's easy. Mm -hmm. It's simple in the sense that it's basically about learning how to stabilize your attention on a particular point. Let's say the breath. That's Mm -hmm. the usual one you will start with. It's about stabilizing your attention, and in doing so, also cultivating a sense of attention or awareness whereby you somehow step back from what's going on within you. You somehow step back from what's going on within you uh, and don't get caught up in the flood of thoughts or fears or fantasies or whatever it is. But you learn to somehow contemplate, consider, reflect on what's going on from an inner state of stillness, of clarity. And I think all meditations are somewhat similar in that they'll have an element of concentration, Mm -hmm. and they'll have an element of attention. Well, that's interesting because that's sort of cultivating an inner peace, and yet so much of what we learn in mindfulness, this is a question actually, is we want to take out into the world um, so that when we're in relationship with others, Mm -hmm. we behave in a way that is more productive. But talk a little bit about how we bring mindfulness out into the world with us. Okay, now this is an important point. Sometimes we think that meditation, mindfulness, is basically all about just gaining a certain period of time each day where you feel inwardly calm and still and so forth, and it's a kind of a way of relaxing and sort of just chilling out and uh, feeling better about yourself. And that's kind of where it begins and ends. But Mm -hmm. that, I think, is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness practice in particular starts with settling, stilling, and becoming, as you say, non-reactive. And that doesn't mean that you don't have reactions. You learn to be, not react to your reactions. That's part of You're the, not getting hooked by You're your not reaction. getting hooked in them. Even when they rise up within you, let's say a fear or a, you, you feel angry with someone, you notice it with clarity and stillness, but you don't let it run the show. You watch it arise, you watch it you know, circle around for a bit, you watch it fade away. But the point with the meditation is that you become more and more attuned to this non-reactivity. It comes into its own when you find yourself in social situations, for example, at work, with friends, with family, and you find an ability to live from that space. A lot of the difficulties we get to in, in our life are not things of our own choosing. We don't choose to be angry necessarily or choose to be greedy. We just find ourselves behaving that way. And it happens so rapidly. These impulses, these, uh, these instincts, these drives, these psychological habits in many cases are just kind of so programmed within. We just find ourselves saying something that quite quickly we really regret. 
we say, hey, I shouldn't have said that. I knew I shouldn't have said that, and yet I still said it. What do you say to people who feel like they're going to lose their edge? I mean, we live, we're in a culture in this country of ambition, and mm. we're in a culture of type A personalities, and people think if they're not super quick and they don't have a fast mm. response, and some people think they need to be tough um, in order to be respected. Yeah. And um, I suspect if somebody comes to me and they are looking at the practice of meditation, they probably feel that that they're losing their edge. Already. Already. Yes. Otherwise, why yeah. would they come and speak to me? So I don't think there's a contradiction there. Okay. I think what we're trying to cultivate is another way of being in the world, and that means all aspects of the world, mm -hmm. including high-pressured business situations. Right. I would argue that actually this kind of uh, training in the end leads us to a much more healthy kind of spontaneity and sharpness, creativity, imagination. I think it releases all of these things. Um, in your book, you talk about photography uh -huh. and your interest in photography, but you yeah. talk about how art is also a way to express our mindful practice. Well, because I think it cultivates a different way of looking at yourself and the world uh, by stepping back, becoming more still, becoming more attentive, this uh, allows us to experience ourselves in a way that's not colored by our, our reactions, uh, our, our fears, our attachments, the story that runs in our mind the whole time and kind of dictates what we think and do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, in a sense, what inhibits the imagination. That's what inhibits creativity. That story, when you talk about that story, is that the, it's the mind chatter or what? Yeah, the mind chatter, the which is basically mind. the monkey mind, or basically it's the ego. The ego sort of constantly reinforcing itself by mm -hmm. saying, you know, I'm like this and I'm going to be like that and I want to do this and da 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 da. Right. And that's something we hold on to for a, sort of, for a certain kind of security. And uh, it does give a degree of security, but at a certain point it becomes counterproductive because what we end up doing is we just keep repeating the same things again and again. We're dwelling in our muck, really. Um, would, do you talk about, like, taming the ego? Is that a part of the practice? Taming is a word we could use. Mm -hmm. um, taming, or I think I'd... But taming in the sense that our minds can be pretty out of control a lot of the time. And one of the things that people discover in meditation, and this is also not always a, something they particularly want to know about themselves... But you give someone the instruction, okay, sit still for 15 minutes and just watch your breath. Sounds incredibly simple. Mm -hmm. But try and do it. And you're there for a few seconds, maybe 15, 20 seconds. It's going fine. And then the next thing you know, you've disappeared. Mm. Your mind has raced off into the past or into the future or it's been triggered by some association. And what's disturbing is that you basically kind of switch off. That We spend a lot of our lives actually not really being present at all. Because we're in the past or the future. We're in the past, we're in the future, we're kind of spacing out and uh, we're on a sort of automatic pilot and we've actually lost um, a presence of mind in which we're conscious and aware of what's going on. So mindfulness practice, for example, is learning to become more rather than less present in our world. Mm -hmm. 
And um, <clears throat> this creates for us another kind of uh, ground within which uh, once these uh, disciplines and skills become more naturalized within us, uh, we have a freedom to think differently, speak differently, look at the world differently as a photographer. You need to get out of that kind of derivative way of seeing things, that conditioned way of seeing the world. Opening up this contemplative meditative space allows you to begin to see things afresh. And that can translate into art, into poetry. I think all great poets and artists are, in some senses, um, people who have a natural ability to see the world in new and revealing ways. I've heard people say on a, you know, on their first 10-day silent retreat, they want to escape. And by the fourth <laughs> day, they're sort of starting to mm -hmm. get a little deeper into it and start to accept it by the sixth or seventh day, they're looking around at nature and seeing it in a completely different way. You see that shift happening once people have, have been in that space. No, that's definitely the case. That uh, a, Let's take a, a week or a 10-day retreat. The first two or three days can be pretty awful, and you may actually just say, why the hell am I here? I want, yeah. to, get, I want to get out of this Right, place. right. But if you can go over that um, initial resistance, right. um, Again, it's a bit like if you have a boat, a little boat, and you want to take it out into the ocean. The first bit is getting it across the breakers and the waves, and that can be really hard, tough and yeah. hard. It's, but at a certain point, like in a retreat, day three, day four, you kind of get out to sea. Mm. And it's at that point that you begin to reap the rewards of having made those efforts. And as you say, it you get into a frame of mind where you're no longer so dominated by your habitual mental chatter and your the stuff that's going on in your life from, you know, in your family and so on. And uh, you begin to realize that this opens your heart, your mind, your senses uh, to be able to find an enormous sense of... Uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of pleasure, of beauty, in the most simple things. So this is like uh, you're learning how to be fully present, and then you go out into the world and you take what you've learned with you, um, which can be really complicated and also requires a lot of mm -hmm. discipline and practice because you're not in a protected and yes. safe environment. This is the challenge. One could almost say that the practice of meditation begins not at the beginning of the retreat, but at the end. Mm -hmm. It's when you go Take out it. in... It's quite... It's relatively easy to go on a secluded retreat in a nice remote place. Mm -hmm. You don't have your... You don't have your iPhone or your TV or your newspapers. And, yeah, you'll get into a very different frame of mind relatively easily. But this practice, I think, only really comes into its own when you can apply it in the cut and thrust of your actual daily life. Otherwise, it's like just taking Why a bother? kind of spiritual holiday. <laughs> right. No, you can, it has its benefits. Right, sure. I guess it's relaxing. It's, but it's relaxing, it's calming. But once people often report this, you know, they go, they come, they say the retreat's been fantastic. Then they get on the train, they go back home. And within a day or so, they're just you know, kind of like they were before, and right. it's been a good break. They might have learned a few things, but they haven't really internalized and uh, developed the practice in a way that they can bring it into the situations of, of life. And we do live in a highly pressured, right. uh, highly uh, 
we live in a, a world where we're bombarded by information uh, through all our senses all the time. And so that's actually, I think, really quite challenging. Right. And it does. This is where the practice really takes time. You need patience. You need perseverance. But the retreat situation allows you to taste what it's like mm. to be present, mm. to be aware, to be focused. You get a, a first-hand experience of it, and that's very important because you you know that it can have these effects. I keep thinking about it, um, you know, partially as a framework, but the world that we live in today is so complicated and mm -hmm. it's so hard to hold. And you talk about this in your book, the dimensions of good and bad mm -hmm. in in our worlds mm -hmm. and to not get carried away by that. And, you know, I wonder how our meditation practice or our mindfulness practice or mindful awareness helps us when we're in these kinds of situations, which are really all the time. I mean, our world is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, our know, world is a, is a conflicted, violent and unpredictable place. Right. And um, yes, I'm not going to make a naive uh, statements such as if you practice mindfulness you'll cope with these things a lot better <laughs> yeah. I hope you will I think it's giving you tools it's giving you uh, some sort of resource to draw upon but it's not going to guarantee that you will somehow come up with the solution that will end all these troubles you will begin in many ways to realize the, the real depths of these crises you'll become perhaps more attentive to the complex set of conditions and circumstances that gives rise to them. You'll become more aware of how you have certain innate habitual reactions to them which you don't feel terribly proud of. But uh, but natural for It's a entirely lot of natural and I see I think what's good about meditation in this regard is that you start to realize that your reactions are just an entirely natural process. There's nothing good or bad about feeling a certain way or certain thoughts bubble up in your mind. But we have the freedom not to get caught up in those reactions. We have the freedom to consider responding in a way that's not determined by our habit patterns. Right. And there's not a black and white answer. There is no right and wrong way to respond because we're dealing with a situation that is not really reducible to some answer of that nature. What we're looking for is a, another framework within us where we can tap down into the deeper resources of our essential empathy mm -hmm. with the suffering of others, and that includes everyone involved in this story. Or you talk about this a little bit in your book. Um, which is called After Buddhism, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age. I love that, After Buddhism. It's great. You, know, you talk about how meditation connects us as human beings and helps us to think about the deepest questions about what it means to be human. And I think some of these things that have you know, happened in our lifetimes really um, continue to inspire those deeper questions. No, that's absolutely right. Um, to me, meditation is, in a sense, learning to live a life that is not just sort of scudding along the surface, mm -hmm. but it, in learning how to stop, mm -hmm. in learning how to be still. It's not a passive kind of resignation or disengagement at all. It's very much about learning how to tap more deeply into the, the fundamental questions that all people face. More important than the answers are being able to ask the questions more deeply. 
and to enter into a more reflective uh, relationship with the suffering that uh, is going on within and around us and to seek to respond to that rather than to react to that. And how we respond will depend on our particular circumstances. We may be artists, we may be writers, we may be people working in business, mm -hmm. and we try to find ways to bring our skills to bear on these situations uh, from a non-reactive space that hopefully in small increments might make a positive difference in the world. So meditation is, is challenging and threatening because it begins to erode those uh, barriers that we've set up to protect me against you and against others and against life. It threatens our false securities. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, though, particularly when meditation is integrated with a, with a more articulate philosophy of life, uh, a clearer moral sense, then I think it can be a source of great courage, mm. a source that can enable us to, to take risks, to think differently. And that might also involve sometimes really making radical life changes. Yeah. I've um, heard from some, some people who have also, we talked about the retreats, but in day four of the retreat, they, they use this language, my heart just broke open. Yeah, exactly. And I think that Breaking open of your heart is also what connects us with one another, yes. knowing that all of our hearts break open. That's right. Now, that's, I think, a good way of putting it. And it is a common experience that people have. Sometimes it's a very emotional moment mm -hmm. that you find during a retreat where you, you, know, you, you, know, you, you, you allow yourself to feel the grief of your life, maybe the, the frustrations, the deep frustrations of your life. And that can be both a great relief um, but more importantly, I think, it gives us yet another glimpse into the fact that we are not bound to think and behave in somewhat familiar and predictable ways. There is a freedom within us that can um, give us the possibility of thinking, feeling and acting otherwise. But the important thing, it's all very well for the heart to open, the heart to break, that's lovely, but the real challenge is uh, can we then channel those new energies into some purpose-focused activity, some way of life, some way of speaking, acting, working. It's not just about feeling terribly emotional and mm -hmm. sensitive and right. having a kind of catharsis. Yeah. It is where does that catharsis take us? Mm. That is so wise. Um, yeah, I think it's so important. Um, which of your you know, books would you start with? <laughs> the book of mine that's probably the best to begin with is called Buddhism Without Beliefs. That's written for a general readership. It gives basic instructions in meditation, but it also presents the meditation within a philosophical and ethical framework. It's really a non it's a jargon-free approach. Thank you so much. You are brilliant and wise, and I'm so grateful that you were able to articulate your teachings in, in a way that is really clear and focused. And um, thank you well, very thank much Well, thank you very much, here. Patricia. You're really very kind it. to say such uh, generous things. Thank you all for listening. And we look forward to sharing more inspiring stories on our next episode. If you'd like to know more about Stephen's take on Buddhism in general and meditation specifically, 
His books are available online. If you have feedback or suggestions for stories, email us at untangle at And don't forget to check out Gaim's Meditation Studio app in the App Store. See you next time.